Well, we uh, enjoyed uh, Pastor Doug Witzke last week, a good friend of mine from um, seminary. Uh, first time we've seen each other in 32 years, if you can believe it. And it was great to uh, reunite um, in a church context. Uh, we're both pastors, and we, we both love and serve the Lord, and that was, was great. It's good for you to to hear some of uh, some of the other um, pastors, those that uh, are friends of mine and, and are doing a good work in another part of the country. Uh, but now we are uh, back at it, <clears throat> I, um, and I'm very excited to, uh, to pick up in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So without further ado, I want to, uh, I want to say if, uh, if you know what's going on in our country, uh, you know that we live in chaotic times, and they're getting uh, even perilous for the masses. I think you could see that. But it is worse than we think for those who are bound to an under-the-sun worldview. Worse. So here is what <coughs> they need to know, and here is what we Christians need to remind ourselves of in this moment. And that is meaning and anything of value to be gained does not, indeed cannot, come from this life. It must come from outside of it. And I want you to keep that in your mind as you listen to this message this morning, as we go into Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and tear up verses 3 to 11 and put it all back together again. I'm very excited to do that with you. I want to begin by saying that according to the free online idioms dictionary, the phrase, nothing new under the sun, is a saying that is sometimes used for hyperbolic effect to mean this, quote, there is nothing in the world that has not already happened, been seen, been created. Things exists, exist now as they always have, end quote. Now, exaggeration aside, doesn't life often seem to be this way? I mean, let's take a slice out of life for an example. How about the movie and TV industry? You don't have to watch very much of either to know that there's very little original and good anymore. Either there's a new spin on an old theme or a remake of something that's already been done. And it's getting old. I mean, how many Batman and Superman movies do we need? Now, I've, I've chosen this saying as a title for the next section because... It captures the meaning of the text that we're going to look at very well, as I hope to show you. But even more, it's, it originated with this sage. Uh, he coined it over 2,000 plus years ago, and he uses it to sum up his teaching of verses, 11 to three, uh, verses 3 to 11. And he was not exaggerating. Not one bit. He's quite literal. So if that's true then what does he mean by this saying, nothing's new under the sun? Well, he doesn't mean that there is nothing innovative or nothing unfamiliar to us in life. He's not denying that there have been technological advances. There were even some at his time. Now, most of you here this morning grew up without cell phones, without computers. And a few of you grew up without TVs, freezes, and air conditioners. And those are technological advancements. 
So we're not denying innovation. We're not denying unfamiliar experiences in life, and neither is the sage. But human innovation is no more than ingenious ways of enhancing the same things that people have always been doing. Before refrigeration, people salted their food to preserve its freshness. Before TV, there was live theater for entertainment. And if you wanted to stay cool on a hot day, you looked for shade, a nice breeze, or went swimming. Before Gutenberg's printing press in the 1400s, there were other ways to get out information to the masses, just much slower and not as comprehensive. But whether we're talking about smoke signals, Morse code, Pony Express, or texting, the concepts behind them all are the same. And there will no doubt be more ingenious ways of doing the same things in the distant future that will be even better and more amazing. You can be sure the prototypes already exist. The government is usually a good 50 years ahead of the masses. And, it, and is, as, as in the case of uh, artificial intelligence, to give you one example. Okay, so what about newborns? They're new. Well, only in that a particular individual has never existed before. But there have always been babies. People are always having babies. We could go on. I think it's clear by now that sameness, sameness characterizes life under the sun. And it is the thrust of this passage. What the sage means then by nothing new under the sun is that th is that there is nothing that has been previously known that is fresh, that breaks into the sameness of life to add value and meaning to it. That's what he means. Nothing new. Is there anything that, like that? Anything we can think of? Oh, there are a few things. For example, creation. Creation that God brought out of nothing was new. So where there was nothing once upon a time, God created, brought create creation into existence. We might also say God's special revelation, the Bible, his word, that he revealed to his chosen people, starting with Adam and Eve, that we would not have known unless God revealed it. That's new. Breaks into the sameness of life. Now, sin and the resultant fall of Adam were surely new, although it took away from the value of life. In fact, it killed life. But what followed on the heels of that was new. It was fresh. And that is God's covenant promise of redemption based on the coming of Messiah. More on that in a bit. Now, outside of those, and a few others that come from above the sun, and I'll mention those in due course, what is it about human existence? You might ask somebody, what is it about human existence that people who are governed by an under-the-sun worldview can actually say is fresh and adds value and meaning to life? Not one thing. Not one thing. They're bound by sameness, by a certain rhythm and predictability of life. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 
52 uh, weeks in a year. Our calendars never change. Nature is filled with absolutes for seasons, the tides, annuals, springtime, and harvest. And sometimes, sometimes the sameness of life gets to us, despite our best efforts to change it up. Some even despair over the monotonous cadence of life's sameness. Hey Bill, what you doing tomorrow? Same thing I did yesterday, same thing that I'll do tomorrow. Work. And you can, you can sense Bill's wearisome tone of voice and the infli- affliction that he feels from nothing new under the sun. Now, the regularity, just want you to know, the regularity that God himself built into the created order is a testimony to his sovereignty. He ordered it, and he runs it like a well-oiled machine. But unless people know the good sovereign personally and live by an above-the-sun worldview that informs them as to what is truly new and fresh within God's created order and human existence, they cannot escape the scourge of sameness. And they can do nothing about it. Nothing. Sage's experience, which is really common experience here, will tell you that this is so. And he uses their under-the-sun epistemology, that is, basing what they know to be true solely on what they can see and experience on this earth to support the premise that there is nothing fresh that breaks into life to give it value and meaning. If that's true, then it's only a matter of time before a person experiences just how painfully humdrum, wearisome, and mundane life is when it has no room for God in it. And what do people do who are plagued by sameness and the humdrum of life? Well, they invent all kinds of strategies to try and override it. In 1965, Elliot Jacques coined the phrase midlife crisis. And that's a period of time in life, mostly in the lives of men, when a person finds becoming older and, and all that that entails very depressing and difficult to accept. And they try and maintain or recapture a youthful appearance and lifestyle. But no matter how differently a guy dresses, or dumps his wife for a younger woman, or trades his 2,000 Buick Regal for a Ferrari, or spends all his free time at casinos, he cannot reverse the inevitable decline in health that awaits us all. Oh, it's coming. And you can do nothing about it. In fact, let me illustrate this to you. Agegracefullyamerica.com is a website that I found online. Came up in a long list of other such websites when I typed in how to spice up my life. It offers a page with, with the title Smart Strategies for successful living. You're linked to a happier, healthier lifestyle. It opened this way, quote, take a few moments to assess what really adds excitement to your life. If you're struggling to find the answer, well then it's time to add spice to your life. 
And no, it doesn't have to be something expensive, extravagant, or time-consuming. Just add the right amount of spice to bounce, and a bounce in your step and a smile on your face. End quote. Are you just a little curious? All right. Here's their list without commentary. Quote, start exploring. Say yes to opportunities. Get those creative juices flowing. Make time to travel. Treat yourself to something good. Redecorate your room. Be an avid learner and reader. Change your appearance. Get a pet. Become a volunteer. End quote. But is any one of these unique? No. No, there isn't anything new, remember? Nothing. And how long will it be before this list becomes overdone? Oh, been there, done that. But one's thirst for meaning and value in life persists. One's desire to be compensated for all of one's efforts to recreate an otherwise dull existence grows even stronger. So what can be done? Well, spice up the spice list. What else? With strategies that are more bizarre, of course. Do you remember when Casual Friday was introduced some years back? Professional wear in the office became casual, and everyone came to work in jeans and a t-shirt. The trend, that trend then found its way into the public school system, and for a while, students wore pajamas and slippers to the classroom. For, um, so dressing informally in a formal setting, well, that was different, and people found breaking social taboos quite exhilarating. That's the spice. Until that became old. So then they started wearing clothes in unusual ways. Men wore their pants down around mid-thigh to reveal their rear ends. Women wore their top undergarments exposed. It's the new sexy. So in an attempt to break through the sameness of life, people resorted to wearing clothes in a way that clothes were not originally designed to be worn and to expose those parts of their body that clothes were originally meant to cover. Are you getting this? When you think soberly about this behavior, it's really rather pathetic, isn't it? Pathetic. These are some of, the be of people's best attempts to change what cannot be changed in life under the sun. But all of them, wearing clothes differently, clothes that don't fit the occasion, that expose rather than cover, along with ideas about spicing up life, are just plain embarrassing. It amounts to rearranging deck furniture on a sinking ship. But I'll continue. Uh, it'll continue, rather, because it, it is all that people can do. And they will get more bizarre as time goes on because there is nothing new under the sun. Now, people change their gender. They get rid of it altogether. And they invent new pronouns. And beloved, if there are people willing to mutilate themselves in this endeavor, it is only a matter of time before harming others will be the order of the day. Oh, the thirst for value and meaning in life. 
So let's see how the sage develops this idea of sameness. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're looking at verses 3 to 11. Now last time we got past the preamble of the book, that's in verses 1 and 2, where he declares that all is vapor, it's a breath. And in the first half of the book, he qualifies breath as fleeting. It's unreliable. There's no compensation, no valued gain for those who live under the sun with a strictly under-the-sun worldview. And he begins his first defense of that in this section. It has its own introduction, in fact, verse 3. It takes the form of a lead-in question. Here's the question. Where does one find compensation for one's wearisome labor under the sun? Valued gain. Where is it? In other words, what advantage does a person have in all his work which he does under the sun? Where I can find meaning and value in life. Well, let's understand this introduction before we, we see his argument. It has two important terms in it that you should note. The first one is translated advantage by the New American Standard Bible. And that Hebrew word behind this translation is unique to Ecclesiastes, occurring 14 times, so it's a key word. It means profit, gain, compensation. The Septuagint translation is surplus. So it, it, it goes with the key phrase, futility of futilities. All is futile because there's no gain, no profit for wearisome labor under the sun. For all that I do, my whole life, there's really nothing to show for it. Now the second word in this verse, and a favorite of the sage throughout the book, is work, toil. Now the word does make some scant, a scant number of occurrences in other parts of the Old Testament with the idea of suffering, or sometimes with the idea of trouble, trouble that befalls someone or trouble that someone inflicts on another. But by far, the majority of its occurrences uh, are in Ecclesiastes where it means labor. It means work. But this is late Hebrew. Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew of Ecclesiastes is late. And in late Hebrew, toil often is associated with pain and weariness. No surprise there. Work is relentless, right? If I'm not working, well, then I'm doing some other work. Yard work, housework, the kid's homework. It just never ends. The sage emphasizes the idea of relentlessness in chapter 6, verse 7. All a person's labor is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Relentless. And work requires a lot of effort. We, we have to try hard to work if we hope to be successful. And the sage talks about a striving with which a person labors under the sun in chapter 2, verse 22. And not only striving, but working smarter, wisely, is necessary, or else work becomes even more wearisome. Listen to chapter 10, verse 15. The labor of a fool makes him so weary that he does not even know how to find his way back to his hometown. Many commentators agree, then, that labor in Ecclesiastes occurs more with this negative tone than without it. Pain and weariness. Perhaps you can relate to these two twin concepts in your work. Pain and weariness. 
Have you ever thought of work as, at times, as a necessary evil? You know, there is a reason it's called the daily grind. Why we slave away at it. Especially if it's not something that we particularly enjoy or, or it doesn't make the best use of our talents. You know, some people don't have a choice or have little choice about their work. They have to make a living. And the whole context of work just seems, well, dismal, depressing, painful, and wearisome. Most people spend eight hour or eight plus hours a day in one spot doing the same thing and additional exhausting hours in maddening traffic coming and going. And by the time they get home to, and, and eat supper, there's little time for, for much else before they have to hit the sack for a decent night's sleep so they can get up and do it all over again the next day and four more days after that. Does it seem like the ratio of work to play is a little bit unbalanced? You have to work long hours just to fund a well-meaning respite or a hobby or a sport that you have precious little time to enjoy. And oh, you bear the scars, by the way, of years of work well enough, don't you? And you feel them too. Carpal tunnel syndrome, hearing loss, debilitating arthritis, eye trouble, back pain. Work wreaks havoc on the body. So why is it that work has received such a bad rap? Especially for all the good it does in making it possible to live. I mean, last I checked, work is not a result of the fall. God created Adam a working being, and he commanded him to till the garden, to rule and subdue the earth. We have every reason to believe that work in the pre-fall environment was delightful, rewarding, great gain, and honoring to God. God has always blessed industry, always. Well, Genesis tells us that Adam's labor was cursed as a result of the fall. And one of the many disastrous consequences is that everything about tilling that Adam would continue to do would now be troublesome, wearisome, and painful. And don't forget, the ground was also cursed, so it became hard to till. And it produced hardy thorns and thistles as keen reminders of the fall. Adam would have to expend great energy just to make a living. By the sweat of your face, God said, you shall eat bread. Never before was there so much sweat equity in tilling the ground. No question about it, the fall took all the joy out of making a living. And the fact that work became a hardship after the fall, as part of the curse, is a reality that plagues those who are governed strictly by an under-the-sun worldview. And the sage tells us that people try to counterbalance the relentless, wearisome, and tenaciously hectic work with all kinds of, of things just to, just to keep their sanity. Like eating, drinking, and merrymaking, for example. Chapter 8, verse 15. Sage also observes in chapter 10, verse 18, that the lazier you are, the worse work is. He says... Through extreme laziness, the rafters sag 
and through idleness the house leaks. And to top it off, he exposes in chapter 4 an underlying rivalry that motivates people to get ahead. Listen to verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a person and his neighbor. This, too, is futility and striving after the wind. This introduction, then, verse 3, captures the main idea of the section. And that is this, that with life under the sun that is not under God, there is nothing fresh that breaks into its ongoing profitless cycles to give it lasting meaning and value that is worth remembering. When I say under God, by the way, I mean in a relationship with him. Obviously, everyone operates under the sovereign control of God, whether or not he or she knows it or likes it. But not everyone operates out of a personal, saved relationship with him. And that's what I mean by under God. So let's see how the sage develops this. He's got four arguments. Four arguments that develops this main idea. Number one. Those living under the sun but not under God will find no compensation in longevity. No reward, no personal valued gain in living a long life. Verse 4. If you think that living well into your 90s is compensation for all your hard work, think again. The sage makes the, the point that people cannot expect to enjoy any valued gain under the sun when their very existence is but a breath, fleeting and, and, and transient. He eases us into this rather sobering thought by comparing the transiency of human life with the permanency of the created order. One lasts forever. The other is fleeting. Look at verse 4. The generation, a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. We need to understand this remark about the earth in context. The sage is contrasting human life with, light, with the life of the world. So in that context, the world would seem to last forever. We know, of course, that the world God created will, uh, will be recreated, right? He will create a new heavens and a new earth, especially or essentially by redeeming it. But the point here is that creation continues on without you. It's like a, a living organism, and, and we're the cells, which eventually die, we're flushed out, and then we're replaced by new ones. Generations come, and generations go, without ever making any lasting or significant effect on God's earth. A person is born, he grows up, he dies. Another person is born, he grows up, he dies. And then another person is born and so on. But that old oak tree out behind your house, it'll be there five generations from now. Did you ever look at a, a tree, honest, and, and think to yourself, how many generations have looked at that tree and how many more will have looked at it after I'm gone? Or simply remark to yourself, this tree will will still be here long after I'm gone. Yes, it will. And the grass will still continue to grow. And the rain will continue to fall. Just as they always have, and tomorrow is another day. 
cruel and sad fact is everything about nature that you see now will simply continue on unchanged after you're gone. It just keeps going and going the same way it always has been, unaffected by numerous generations. And if you're looking for value and meaning in a long life, you will be sorely disappointed. As a hospice chaplain for five years, I have encountered many elderly people that recognize this and start longing for death. For them, it was no way to live. Quality of life deteriorates the older we get. But compared to history and eternity, one lifetime is a drop in the bucket. Just an insignificant blip on the screen of life, the sage says. Therefore, longevity is not the meaningful gain to your toil under the sun. All right, well, what else is there? Well, number two, those under the sun, but not under God, will find no compensation in human achievement. So people will often think about human achievement. In verse 5 through 8, the sage argues that because nature is hard at work, in its prescribed courses without any compensation for its labor, we should expect nothing different from life under the sun that is not under God. So, he personifies these cycles of nature. Constantly and endlessly recycling, but never producing anything new or different. Let, let's, let's go through each of these. He starts with the sun in verse 5. He says, also the sun rises and the sun sets. And hurrying to its place, it rises again. So the Hebrew word translated hurrying is the word for pant, as, like a dog does when he's exerted. So once the sun ends its circuit by setting in the west, it hurries back, panting to the east to start all over again, yet it produces nothing new. Nothing. Same thing. And it does this over and over again, toiling, working, just to repeat itself. The sage emphasizes the tireless work of the sun that produces no gain. He makes the same point with the wind, the wind cycle in verse 6, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. As the sun toils from east to west, and back again without any gain, so the wind toils tirelessly from north to south and back again without any gain. It blows constantly, working away the same way, current after current, but yields nothing new. And the same is true with the water cycle. It too has a prescribed circuit. In verse 7, Sage says, All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. So obviously he has in mind the hydrological cycle, right? The evaporation process carries the water back up to the clouds. In turn, the clouds pour water back into the rivers to start the cycle all, all over again. It's the same endless cycle as that of the sun and the wind. The meteorological cycles work as hard as they do, running their courses as tirelessly as they do, producing nothing new. 
There's no valued gain to their work. They simply start over doing the same thing that they did the day before, and they will do the day after. In verse 8, the sage declares that just observing these endless cycles of nature leaves us speechless. And there is no end to what we see and hear in the repetition of nature's movements. He says all things are wearisome. No one can tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. So if nature works that hard, harder than any human being, and achieves no gain, why should people ever think that they would? Yes. Number three. There's something else people look to for compensation in life, but are sorely disappointed. It's diversity. Diversity in life. Those living under the sun but not under God find no compensation in diversity, though. Verses 9 and 10. The sage establishes the, that fact, or the fact that nature runs by well-ordered prescribed courses, as we can see just from the meteorological aspects, and he belabors the point with not one but three examples to impress upon us the uniformity of the created order, or to put it in terms that we can relate to, the utter sameness of nature. It's always the same. The sun will always rise and set on time. The wind will always blow. That's what wind does. And the, and the water cycle will continue on uninterruptedly. The sage, you see, is not denying the benefits of the sun and the wind and the rain. They keep life going on the earth. His point is simply that they're, that they're constant, un, constant but unchanging and unchanging. They have to hurry up and get back to the beginning of the cycle to start all over again just to do the same thing. As we argued in our introduction, sameness can be frustrating. It can be monotonous. Nothing new ever breaks forth in nature. Adam and Eve looked at the same stars that we do, the same moon, the same sun. They felt the same gentle breezes against their face as we do. But is this all there is to life? Are people hostages to sameness for as long as they live? Is there nothing new of value or gain? The answer for those under the sun but not under God is a resounding yes. Sorry. That is the sage's bold declaration in verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. The future simply repeats the past. Everything continues as it always has. There's nothing new here, and he elaborates on this in verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, oh, see this? It's new. Well, it's already existed for ages which were before us, he says. His verdict, you understand, is based on sight alone, right? You understand this. Sight alone. On what he experiences in life under the sun. And all worldviews that are limited to sight and experience must ultimately arrive at the same conclusion, even though most people don't even want to go there. Try as they 
might to recreate life in their search for meaning, they're just shuffling the deck, as it were, only to be dealt the same hands over and over again. If you're looking for meaning and gain in variety, diversity of life, you will be sorely disappointed. There is no variety or diversity in creation that scream, that doesn't scream sameness. Number four, and finally, those living under the sun, but not under God, find no compensation in memories. In memories. This is verse 11. The sage concludes his defense in verse 11, where he makes this last observation from experience that all is forgotten over the generations. There is no remembrance of the earlier things and of the later things as well which will occur. There will be no remembrance of them among those who will come later still. Remembering. Remembering is not a passive activity. I want you to think about this. It's not like forgetting. You don't have to work at forgetting something. It just happens. You do have to work on remembering something. It is an active activity. The Hebrew word here also has the meaning elsewhere in the Old Testament of memorial. And there were a lot of those in Israel where the past acts of God's grace and mercy were actually reenacted by Israel as a way to keep the memory of their God alive and his redeeming work alive from one generation to the next. We call it catechism. But outside of a covenant relationship with God, what is there under the sun that is worth remembering? If you're looking for meaning and gain in memories as people often do, I still have my memories. You will be sorely disappointed. Our memories become distorted as time goes on. Or we just lose them altogether. And you won't even be remembered after a second generation of your own descendants. The American conservative political commentator Jesse Waters had become known from his surprise interviews on college campuses around the country, including Ivy League colleges, asking students about their own history. Who won the Civil War? Who fought in the Civil War? Who was, who was the vice president to Obama? I mean, just simple obvious questions like this on campuses, college campuses. And, and it's shocking. Nine times out of ten, they couldn't get the right answer. What was the War of Independence all about? I mean, really, just, it, it's, just, uh, it's just sad. It is astounding that most couldn't answer these questions, which just shows us how unimportant the past is to many younger generations. You might not like it. You might not agree with it. You might think it's terrible, but it's a reality, and it will continue, just as the sage said. In conclusion, I mentioned at the outset of this brief section that there are fresh, new aspects of life. There really are 
that have broken through the sameness of life under the sun. Here are more. Messiah's incarnation, his life and cross work, and his resurrection comprise the freshest events ever to break into the sameness of humanity. Jesus is new. And those who trust Christ for salvation of their souls have, as Paul says, put on or put off the old self, that is, an under-the-sun lifestyle, and has put on the new self, that is, the above-sun lifestyle. They have, they have died with Christ, they were buried with him, and they rose to newness of life. Everything about a redeemed life is new and fresh. Everything. Hear what Paul says to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, and not on things that are under the sun. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Lots of new stuff for those who have an above-the-sun worldview. The better country that believers anticipate is a large part of the newness that comes in Christ. We're not limited to this under-the-sun place. There is a better country, a different shore that all the saints of old longed for. We have been born again to a living hope we heard this morning in our scripture reading. Peter says, the certainty of eternal life that brings, that, that, that begins for us now and that Christ will consummate at his return. The, ind- the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is new and fresh as well. And with salvation and the promise of eternal life in a better country, God puts a new song in our mouths, scripture says that sings of God's mercies, which are new every day. And his grace, which is sufficient for the moment. These new and fresh aspects of life under the sun belong to those who belong to God and who are under his lordship, who have an above-the-sun worldview. And only those who come to Christ and rest in his work, can be outfitted to live life as it was originally intended to be lived by representing our great God and creator. Christians, those who live under the sun with an above-the-sun worldview, can appreciate what is new and fresh in a world that is bound by sameness. And there is gain for us, not in longevity, but in eternal life. Not in human achievements, but in works of righteousness that invest in the kingdom. Not in diversity out of sameness, but in oneness of diversity in the body of Christ. And not in memorials or memories of the past, but by remembering the significance of the death of Christ that prefigures for us the future a consummation of what Jesus died for, life with God. It is 
for those who trust Christ, who came to us from above the sun. And if we do, then we can be there with him, even now. And we can live by above the sun principles. How glorious. Father, we are grateful for this time together and that we could turn our attention to this wonderful passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. Sobering thoughts here that remind us of, uh, of how the Lord truly delivered us out of darkness and into light. And we pray that we, will, that we would be quick to tell our family, our relatives, our friends, neighbors, acquaintances, whoever you put in our little circles of life, that we might give them hope that they too can be rescued out of the monotony of life's sameness, that they may see the, the value of life in Christ. Lord, we pray that you will give us the wherewithal to do this. May we find your grace sufficient for this very important task, battling for the minds of men and women in evangelism and, and living life until you come again in a way that you have, that you have called us to live, life that, that was as it was meant to be lived, life that will bring honor and glory to you and will benefit the church greatly. In Jesus' name we pray.